thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of hearts, just as you would obey Christ. So says St. Paul in the letter to the Ephesians. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves. So it's written in the book of Leviticus in the Hebrew Bible. So the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible may not exactly condone slavery, but they do seem to accept it as part of the fabric of societies that spawn Judaism and Christianity. And of course, there are equivalents in all faith traditions. Fast forward to the middle of the 17th century and British merchants and their maritime insurers transformed the ancient system of slavery by monetizing it in a highly effective way. They saw the potential value of capturing Africans and transporting them to the Americas as slaves. Bristol and Liverpool boomed blacksmiths got rich making chains and manacles the anglican church like most churches was mostly passive medical research has given us an oblique insight into this sorry history as chris smith discovered when he talked to daniel blanco mello on the naked scientist show does stress turn your hair gray it's famously known that the europeans came to colonize america however it also coincided with this tragic period in time where the Europeans were also bringing forced labor into the Americas, and those were coming from Africa, and that is what is known as the transatlantic slave trade. Hence, your starting hypothesis is these people come, they could not just come alone, they bring with them their infections, and if they've brought people who they've enslaved with them, infections that might be in those slaves may also have come. 
Yeah, exactly. Influx of people, influx of animals, and influx of pathogens. With the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, British lawyers got involved and helped their clients evade prosecution under the new law by coming up with a scheme which they called indentured labour. Slavery in all but name. This persisted for many years and now we have the plague of what we've come to call modern slavery. It's not as blatant as old stale plantation labour, but think of brothels, nail bars, car wash outlets. Think of some wealthy households all of whom need victims they can exploit, and people traffickers happily supply them. Remember the program on Mo Farah and his story of domestic servitude? Modern slavery is our subject this week, and we have two guests well qualified to discuss it. Kevin Highland was appointed after 30 years in the police force as the first independent anti-slavery commissioner in 2010 and is involved with Santa Marta, a Catholic anti-slavery organisation. Anne-Lauren Saunders, head of policy who works for the Bristol-based charity Unseen, established to combat this modern iteration of the slave trade. Well, welcome both. Can I ask you, was there a standout formative experience that led you into your work with modern slavery? Lauren? There was an event when I was a teenager. It was someone close to me told me an experience that was very difficult for them. At the time, I didn't really know what to do with that information. I felt very powerless. Um, I really wanted to help that person, but didn't know who to turn to or what to do. Um, So that was a kind of moment where I sort of thought in my career, I want to be able to support people who've been through situations of horrific nature because I never wanted to feel powerless again. When I was a very young police officer, I, I remember going to a robbery where a, an elderly religious sister had been robbed of a pension. And she explained to me how she forgave the person who robbed her, you know, something that I would have found hard to do. And then about three weeks later, I went to the same house and the same woman had been robbed again, but she never went out again. And she, you know, she was then um, stuck indoors. She died not that long after. But I saw the vulnerability that crime creates um, and, the, and the way people's lives can be ruined by crime. And so I think that's when I moved into human trafficking and took over the teams in London and developed the teams. That's what I focused on. The fact that, you know, you saw this crime and it's not seen as a crime. Sometimes it's seen as a social issue. As you said in your introduction, it's become part of the social fabric of, you know, our existence And that's a big crime to deal with. And I felt that that challenge is something that I've got a role to play in. So you've both taken it on. You're passionately engaged in this endeavour. Lauren, how prevalent is it? I mean, is it really happening in plain sight? I mean, yes, absolutely. I think you mentioned earlier on about nail bars, car washes. So those sorts of things are everywhere. And there will also be other areas where if you're buying cheap clothes, from abroad or the food that you eat there could have been modern slavery within the supply chains i can see how it's prevalent and we read about how it's prevalent in the supply chain in places where their goods are manufactured be it in pakistan or in in other countries of the world um but what about here you know in the west we think about it as a relatively wealthy society can you give us some examples of that slave uh, existence that you specifically have come across in bristol there are massage parlors Um, which are fronts for sexual exploitation. There's also sexual exploitation that happens in private homes out of sight of 
the, the kind of general public. We also see cannabis cultivation within private homes, so private rented accommodation. Kevin, why do victims feel guilty? Well, it's the way the perpetrators work. You know, sometimes it's about, you know, controlling the victim, making them feel that they owe them a duty. You know, what we might align to Stockholm Syndrome, you know, which is where people have been held in captivity and then they align themselves to their captors. I think also, you know, they come from areas very often or societies, and I'm talking in the UK as well, where they haven't had opportunity, they're vulnerable communities. And, you know, one of the biggest problems if we talk about the UK is UK nationals, you know, particularly young people who are being forced into drugs crime, forced into, you know, sex crime. And, you know, we really haven't understood that. And, you know, I was a police officer in Tottenham in the times of the riots, just after the riots. And, you know, society was upset there with a lot of things. But young people, when they got to the age of 12, 13, 14, then became, you know, involved in gangs. And we've only ever gone at it from a criminal justice approach. Often that's the problem, that we're looking at these things as a criminal justice approach, as opposed to education, as opposed to trade, as opposed to, you know, society and local communities. And, you know, why is it that a 12 or 13 year old suddenly when they walk out their front door are no longer that young kid? They're actually now a commodity for somebody to use. And that applies in the UK and across the world. I think Kevin made a really good point and I've definitely seen through working in our safe houses a particular client comes in mind um, a woman who had been approached as a teenager she'd lost her parents from a very young age went into the foster care system approached by a gang went out in a park with her friends encouraged to drink booze um, take cannabis and then that kind of expanded into taking benzodopamines and then she got addicted and then as a way to feed that addiction she was forced to sell drugs and she was physically abused and then with a substance misuse challenge she was very unable to get the right support um, because also she'd been taught to defend herself against these people so actually she became quite aggressive on occasion when confronted with fear or concern so actually when she had interactions with the police, that could come across as completely different to the fact that she's actually a victim in a very vulnerable circumstance. That just demonstrates the challenge that police have, Kevin, to know the difference between someone who's a victim and someone who's a criminal, because they they could be the same person in some ways. You see somebody acting in a certain way that's violent or aggressive or criminal, but actually they're the victim. Well, I've personally seen that where, you know, we've done operations whereby you've had young women who have actually, you know, been assaulting police, as it were. But actually, it turns out they're victims. And and what needs to happen is the police need to be trained in that. And on one particular case, you know, the, the believed woman was a child. She was only 15 who had been raped, you know, only hours before. That's where working in partnership with NGOs and charities and, and that can be really important that, you know, when you identify the victims, that you have somewhere good to take them, somewhere where they can be properly supported. But the other thing which is so important is that the police should not be relying on a victim. You know, when we look at the fact that trafficking, the, the criminals look on the, the person as a commodity. And in other commodity crimes like drugs and firearms and stolen property, you know, the actual commodity doesn't give any evidence. It doesn't speak and the police should use, you know, other techniques more frequently, which was something that I did. So you're not placing the onus and the burden solely on the victim, which has become 
the norm. And the other thing that we do all the time across the agenda, and I mean, you know, not just police, but others, is victim blaming. We need to stop talking about victims and saying, you know, victims won't do this. Victims won't do that. Every victim is different. And some victims want justice. Some victims want to just get support. Justice to different victims may be different. Some may want people to go to prison. Some may just want compensation. Some may just want medical help. Some might just want a job. So this kind of one size fits all that's been developed over years, I think actually creates a bit of a position whereby victims really, you know, don't have a role to play and they become quite scared of the system itself. That's like the question of agency, it seems, that's running through all of those different options, Kevin. The person has agency in that decision-making process. Is, is that fair to say? Sometimes they're not capable of that or don't feel that they've got the, the power to do that. But if they're dealt with properly and given the right support, and if we took, for example, you know, the national referral mechanism, which is a process that's put in by a government, you know, required under international law, you know, in the UK, victims can be waiting four years for a decision and the regular time it's taken is 18 months. Well, you imagine if you went to the police or you went to the authorities or you went to an NGO, which you can do in trafficking, and it took the authorities 18 months to decide whether you're the victim of a rape or of a other crime, there'd be public outrage. But on trafficking, for some reason, there's a passive approach to it by the state and by the public. And I think we need to wake up. And one of the problems is we don't really see this as a serious crime. And lots of people will push back on that and say, well, it's not just a criminal justice issue. I agree with that entirely. But it is a crime because every single one of the 50 million people in the world, which is the latest figure, who are trafficked, are the victim of a very serious crime. Playing on my mind is what Kevin was saying about the lack of public engagement with this. For those of us in the public who don't experience or don't see it or are blind to uh, modern slavery. And I'm wondering what might shift that. You know, is it a matter of people coming out and acknowledging? You, you, I mentioned the Mo Farah um, documentary, which, you know, reached millions of people. Um, recently, Alex Scott, the footballers, talked about a, a, a abuse in, in, in her family environment. Uh, is, is it that? What, what will shift the needle um, that will just make us more aware of this problem of modern slavery? So the Mo Farah documentary was a kind of a real key moment because it highlighted to many people just how unseen this crime is. Many people would have seen Mo Farah on TV, whether it be running or in other kind of activities he's been involved with, and would have never known that he had experienced this in his past. So it was a real sort of moment that highlights that actually it can be right in front of your face on your TV screens and it's happening to people as well that could be your next door neighbours if there is lots of people going into a, a property or you never see people leave those are both potential indicators that something is happening within that property that isn't quite right so we saw an increase in calls to the helpline following the Mo Farah documentary Kevin, you and I talked about the um, the Mo Farah documentary, didn't we? And and you were telling me about not just the personal challenge that he had, and of course he was incredibly well known. But the fact is, in theory, he could have been removed from the country, couldn't he? Because he came in illegally, according to the law. Um, and there are many cases like that. Yes, and under the impending or intended changes that are coming to the law in the UK, 
uh, soon, um, and even the current situation, he would most certainly be removed. He would be one of those ideal candidates to be on a plane to Rwanda. So Mo Farah, you know, would fit perfectly into that category of someone who should leave and be removed from the UK, which, you know, isn't really illegally if you're looking for asylum. You can't enter illegally if you're looking for asylum. You are an asylum seeker. Kevin, there's been discussion recently about human rights acts, uh, the UK leaving the European Convention on Human Rights and so on, and even discussion about changing or reforming the modern anti-slavery act. What's your sense of where the, the winds are blowing and is it worrying to you? It's extremely worrying to me because, you know, if you look at the people that led into the European Human Rights Act and who who led at the UN, it was people like Winston Churchill who really drove this international desire to have peace in the world. And so if we look at that and the history where it came from, you know, we're forgetting history. That's the first thing. But secondly, you know, the, we've come to this situation now where the Modern Slavery Act is being reviewed very much uh, driven by what's happening on the on the channel, which has driven a lot of views. And yet it's a small issue in the real big scheme of the UK. And so that's being used as a flagship to get legislation change. And then it becomes about blaming people and saying, you know, we've had twelve and a half thousand people last year referred into what's the national referral mechanism. And many of them are abusing it. So we're going to change the legislation so that people can't use that, you know, and can't claim to be victims when they're not, and all these other things. But the system itself that was set up was set up so badly, which is something I said as commissioner, which was something I said continuously. You know, the people who are being employed in it are getting paid, you know, just above the minimum wage. It was training on the job, and that was the advert from the Home Office, on decisions whether someone's a victim of crime that holds life imprisonment. I think more importantly as well on this issue of awareness raising, and we have, like Lauren said, you know, the the great work that's done, you know, we have to accept also that in the last five years, the Walk Free Foundation that gathers data globally, it went from 40 million uh, registered or identified potential victims in 2018 to now 50 million in 2022. And if we look at the global figures from the US Trafficking in Persons report, Victims being identified is going down. Prosecutions are going down. So something globally is not right. And I think that's all about political commitment. Now, there are things like, you know, the US Tariff Act, which is used to stop imports. And during the COVID pandemic, for example, there were gloves being made in Malaysia in forced labour by children. And the US, under its Tariff Act, banned the import. But the UK kept taking them and the UK was then taken to court on it. And now they're going to talk about bringing in new legislation within the National Health Service to stop that. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and I'm discussing modern slavery with my guests, Kevin Highland and Lauren Saunders. Slavery has left its mark on people all over the world, but it's even affected the plant kingdom, too as Clara Groot Crago points out in her essay on the crop pathogen Xanthomonos citri on the Naked Scientist website. Our analyses suggested that the bacterium arrived first in Mauritius and La Réunion around 1850. 
Curiously, this falls shortly after the abolition of slavery, which caused a major loss of workforce on the sugarcane fields that largely fueled the economy of both islands. To replace the now freed slaves, the French and British colonists brought large groups of workers from other colonies to the islands, many of them coming from India and China. Although we've no direct proof, one could speculate that it was this big migration wave that brought the first Xanthonomus citri to the Indian Ocean, as the migrants carried plants and seeds with them. Is modern slavery another version of the slave trade, or is it a different phenomenon? Well, the transatlantic slave trade was all about getting cheap or free labour, and it was about identifying and finding a massive resource of vulnerable people who a more powerful body, which was, you know, the UK and the US, uh, could go and capture. And, uh, you know, it was legal in those days. That's the difference. It was legal then. It was part of the economy. Now, it's illegal. But still, it's possible to go and find vulnerable people and have them in your supply chain for cheap or no cost. So in, in, in terms of the, you know, the driver of it and the reason for it, it's exactly the same. The only thing now is it's not state-sponsored by, you know, nations like UK and, and the US. There are nations that do actually support uh, human trafficking and modern slavery. And that asks another question, why there's never been a case through the international criminal courts. Lauren, what have been the key moments in the anti-slavery drive, um, whether they're legal, like the 2015 Slavery, Modern Slavery Act, or, or other moments? Are there other things that you can think of? I think the 2015 Modern Slavery Act was a kind of real moment because it recognised nationally that modern slavery is an issue. The entry of modern slavery statements, the requirement that came with the Modern Slavery Act for businesses of a high turnover to produce a modern slavery statement saying what they were doing to eradicate modern slavery was a key moment. We could go a lot further. As Kevin was saying, the sanctions and fines and various other kind of methods that other countries are using are not quite there yet within the UK. So I think we can go further. I would like to see survivor voice be a requirement with kind of any modern slavery exploitation legislation moving forward, because those with lived experience of the issue are the most qualified to be able to talk about how we can improve it and stop it from happening to other people, because they know what happened to them and they know the warning signs now because they've been through it. And those experiences are really important to feed in to legislation. That lived experience, Kevin, is important, isn't it? I know that you and I are working together on questions of refugees and resettlement in terms of making sure that asylum seeker voices are heard. In your work as anti-slavery commissioner, was it co-produced with a lived experience uh, representations? Yes, and I would regularly meet with uh, survivors. And uh, when I was in the police, I actually had a survivor who came and, and worked in our office and, and she subsequently set up her own foundation, the Sophie Hayes Foundation. She is a real success story because, you know, her foundation, but also she's in an, in an excellent career now. But I think the survivor voice is, is crucial. And if we look at, you know, in the UK, for example, and across the globe, there are many survivors who are identified, but they're waiting in systems, even for that first opportunity to report their case or to get the support they need. 
or to be given health care or to be given psychological care and all the opportunity to work. You know, many of these people came to the UK to work and yet they're stuck in the UK waiting a decision in a national referral mechanism and not allowed to work. Um, so their situation becomes worse. Lauren, is it a matter of getting it, for example, that stories of survivors' testimonies rather than stories told in schools, in public places? Because it seems to me that we need to almost digest it to really begin to tackle it. Absolutely. This is why Unseen provides a spotlight training, it's called, um, which is delivered to young people within schools about the issues of exploitation and awareness of coercive behaviour and manipulation techniques that exploiters use to entice people into situations of exploitation. So really kind of educating people at an early age. We have seen through some of our data through our helpline statistics, but also from survivor accounts, that people are given information about false job offers, offers of places to stay, or um, kind of enticed by saying, I will give you this job, it will be great, it will take you away from this situation that you're in, which if you're in a difficult situation, if you are homeless, or if you have a poor upbringing, or you meet a partner who you think you trust, but actually is going to exploit you in other ways. I've seen an individual particular case comes to mind of a young woman who got into a relationship with a man who she thought was someone that she could trust, fell in love with him. They wanted to go on holiday together. They got on a plane. She gave him her passport thinking this is completely normal, giving the passport to him to take charge of the situation, if you will. And then actually that passport was removed from her. She never saw it again and then was forced into sexual exploitation. And Kevin, your work with Santa Marta, and I'm, I'm aware that Pope Francis has actually spoken quite uh, vehemently about this. And this is also essential for not just Catholics, but I think people of faith when there are faith leaders, global faith leaders like the Bishop of Rome to pronounce on this topic. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So the idea of the Santa Marta group is it brings together, you know, law enforcement, criminal justice, governments, decision makers, really, to really make them aware of this. And, you know, the first Santa Marta group, when the Pope was in attendance, he made it very clear what he expected of the law enforcement leaders. And he also made it clear what he expected of the church and the church leaders. You know, and he said, and if we come together, it's amazing what can be achieved. But I think one of the problems with this with this whole agenda, as, as Lauren says, is, you know, we have to convince people that this is something that is important. And, you know, very often the victims come from vulnerable communities and the image of a young person from a poor estate in, you know, London or wherever it may be, you know, ending up being a drug dealer because they've been coerced. You know, it's all too easy to say, well, they should have known better or somebody who ends up into forced prostitution or they should have known better. There's also that attitude that when they end up in agriculture, well, they should be lucky they've got a job. They may have been paid less and they may have had bad conditions. Getting over that sort of mindset is what, you know, the Santa Marta group is very much focusing on, getting the leaders to understand that this is as serious as any other crime. You know, in the UK, it holds life imprisonment, which says how serious the crime is. But, you know, it doesn't get the same attention, resource or, you know, oversight as other crimes that hold those sort of penalties. 
As you were speaking, Kevin, I was thinking of, you know, the, the Robert Frost poem, A Path Not Taken. We've all made decisions, um, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but how easy it is to go down a path and then it leads on and it leads on. And before you know where you are, you're in a very, very tricky situation. That's all we've got time for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Kevin Highland and Lauren Saunders, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And I should tell you that Unseen runs a confidential helpline available 24-7. It's not just for victims, but for anyone who needs guidance or support. The number is 08000-121-700. If you enjoy the show, you might want to browse the Naked Reflections archive. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at the Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.